You're listening to Sermon Audio from Christ Church LeGrand. So grab your Bibles, Mark uh, chapter 6. Um, before, we, before we jump in, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to begin with just a little bit of reflection on, on last week. Uh, we covered the, the first six verses of, of Mark 6. Um, it's kind of a gut punch section, really, where Jesus visits his hometown and is rejected. They, they, they send him packing, and he marvels at their unbelief. They set up this sort of series of, of, of straw man questions to tear him down, to, to disparage his identity, his wisdom, his ministry, his family, and then they determine to be offended by him. And he... Uh, he, he marvels at their unbelief. So Mark records this really just unapologetic record of Jesus' humanity. His seeming limitation or inability to influence his own family and, and friends. And there's also in there that grave warning we talked about last week that, that Jesus marvels at their unbelief and then leaves them there in their unbelief. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of Jesus as our high priest. Let me read a couple of verses here. Hebrews 4, uh, 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So since it's Jesus we're talking about, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can sympathize with our our weaknesses, can sympathize with us as finite humans because he came and lived here on this earth as a man. And so he's been faced with the same temptations we face. He, he's felt the allure of lust and greed and power. And we could, we could expand that sympathy in some ways to, to, in terms of human limitations. He understands what it means to get tired. He understands what it means to be hungry and to get frustrated. But something that I, I was reflecting on last week after uh, the sermon was I never really thought of... Jesus' ability to sympathize with us in terms of ministry and in terms of mission. So we've, we've seen Jesus' unmatched power on display already in, in ministry, calming the raging storm, casting out an, an army of raging demons. Those are powerful, powerful displays of his deity, things that none of us, I'm betting, have ever done. but he can also sympathize with our inabilities. He can also sympathize with our, our, our ministry failures, our evangelistic shortcomings. Because last week we saw him as rejectable even. The gospel of Jesus is rejectable. And so we hold fast to our confession because it's it's Jesus we're talking about. 
this this point, this idea, this story uh, at the end of chapter or at the beginning of chapter six, where we see Jesus rejected in his own hometown, is is sort of made all the more poignant just by where it's placed. It sits directly after this long series from the end of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5 with this powerful display of Jesus' deity, his power over nature, over, over death even. And then it sits right before this next passage we're, we're going to be in tonight. So let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, into the text tonight. Uh, Mark chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 6, where we left off um, last week. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the way these stories, the way Marx assembled these stories is to see massive, massive displays of Jesus' power and then the story of his rejection in Nazareth and what immediately follows that is Jesus sending his guys out on mission. But this is uh, another one of Mark's famous sandwiches uh, you have the sending in, in verse 7, but they don't return until verse 30. So let's continue. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
and the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30 is the conclusion. The apostles returned to Jesus and, and told him all that they had done and taught. Why in the world is this much detail and this big of a story inserted right in the middle? There is a lot of detail in here. And so for the sake of just hitting a couple of pieces so that curiosity maybe, you know, for those of you who are super curious, uh, curiosity isn't a distraction. Uh, There's a lot that could be said about history and who Herod is and this whole messed up family situation he's got going on here. This, this, This whole story is just rife with decadent debauchery, selfishness, betrayal, and arrogance we could ask, try to figure out who, which Herod is this. Herod was sort of like a family name. So there were multiple Herods. He was a tetrarch. He was not actually a king. So there's, there's a bit of an ironic um, tongue-in-cheek kind of poking fun in the way that, that Mark actually calls him uh, a King Herod. Uh, a tetrarch ruled over one quarter of, of Palestine under Roman rule. So This Herod was deposed just a couple of years after Jesus was crucified. And he was sentenced in Rome, which is where Mark's readers were. Remember that? Mark wrote to primarily Roman Christians. So there's a little bit of a poking fun at Herod to call him something, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek there to call him a name that he never actually had, but really, really wanted to be king. So all of these extra details really aren't the point. This sandwich structure means we're supposed to pay attention and it's supposed to draw us in and draw our attention to make us ask questions of what, what is the bigger story? What is the bigger point here? Why put this in the middle of, of the first story of mission when really all of the, the history of who Herod was and Herodias and all of these things aren't, aren't really the actual point here? but it does define this overarching story in, in a really big way. So if, you, if we zoom out and look at that structure from verse 6, Jesus went about among the villages teaching, and he sends his disciples out in verse 7. They don't return until verse 30. You can, you can see that, that sandwich structure. So it's almost kind of a sandwich within a sandwich if you look at it because King Herod heard about about Jesus because his name had been known. He heard about this mission. He heard about his disciples going out and and preaching because Jesus was well known. And that sort of sparks this retelling of, of what happened to John, of John's demise. So it's the middle of a sandwich, as with any sandwich. It's the middle of a sandwich that that defines what kind of sandwich it is, right? It's an ice cream sandwich because in the middle is ice cream. It's a ham sandwich because in the middle is ham. And the best part of an Oreo is in every commercial is what's, what's in the middle, right? What's in the middle of a sandwich uh, defines the whole, the whole sandwich. Uh, it defines this, this whole passage and it makes a transcendent point. 
Mark shows us this point with story and structure rather than just tell us outright. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, if, I don't know, if you, anybody ever been panning for gold? Gold panning? If you're sloshing in the, in, in the river. And you could find like two tiny little flakes of gold and they are worth so much because you found them. They're worth way more than they're actually worth. But you find two little flakes of gold when you're panning and man, it's a good day because you did the work, because you dug in, because you, you found them. So it's kind of like that where Mark's telling us something and giving us a bigger point here with story and structure rather than just come out and say it because when we see it, it sticks. It's impactful. It's a bigger, uh, it's a bigger impact on us to see that, that kind of truth. So what is Mark showing us here? He's carefully prepared for this moment. He's carefully prepared uh, for, for this point where Jesus sends the 12 out on mission. And we've studied all the way up until this point pretty closely. So we've been prepared for this as well. And so it's been really cool this week to see this happen and then to look back at where we've been so far and to see this all kind of link together and to see a pattern and a model emerge. We look at Jesus' model of discipleship leading up to this moment. And, and so for me, it, this feels like, man, th- this, is a, this is a big deal. This is, this is it. This is Jesus' model of discipleship. And looking closely week after week, we get to this point and we can see that whole pattern emerge. This is one of those culmination points in, in Mark's gospel where uh, it's, a, it's a watershed moment. Jesus' mission right here is now being carried out by others without the physical presence of Jesus. This is a huge moment. We're going to see over the next just couple of chapters how mission expands and begins to grow. So let's build out uh, Jesus' model of discipleship. And this will help us by sort of putting handles on what we're doing. Making disciples is, is a central piece of our mission as a church. So this can help inform, help shape, help give definition to what our central mission is. So let, let's, let's take a look at it. Verse 7 uh, begins, And he called the twelve and began to send them out. The wording here is subtle, but this wording is meant to recall all of the times that he's called already. And so it sparks this flipping back, looking back to where we've been to see this build out. So if you flip all the way back to chapter 1, verse 14, you get Jesus' first central core message. Uh, Verse 15, I'm sorry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe is his unchanging message. So then, verse 17 of chapter 1. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus calls some some fishermen on on the shore to come and follow him, to be with him, and gives them a transformed purpose in life. 
They were fishing for fish, but I'm going to make you fish for, for men. I'm going to make something different of you. Come and follow me. Come and be with me. And if you remember, as we've, we've gone through Mark, follow and following has always been a faith word in, in the book of Mark. Then in chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus calls Levi. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And then what happens after that? Do you guys remember? Jesus goes to Levi's house. So, so you have this, a bit of an expansion of what he means. Levi gets up and follows Jesus to go be with Jesus. But then what's sort of added to the equation is Jesus being with you. He come, comes to Levi's house the tax collector, the despised one. So there's a transformation of identity from tax gatherer to disciple of Jesus. Second sort of categorical piece, uh, the first piece is just being called by Jesus. The second sort of categorical piece is being changed by Jesus, being changed in the presence of Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, was, was one of those pivotal moments we've looked at before. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. A little bit more definition. A little bit bigger idea of what he is, what he's been about, what his mission really is. And if you remember, we, when we looked at that scene of Jesus going up on the mountain and calling his men close to him, this was, a, this was a symbol, a sign, a scene of Jesus' creative agency as God. Because the word uh, translated here as appointed is the same word for made. So he calls the men to himself and makes them something they weren't before. An act of creative agency. And there was parallels we looked at back to Genesis, back to Mount Sinai, where God was making a new people, and Jesus here is making a new people. And so we get an additional piece. To be with Jesus is a significant piece of the mission, and to be sent by Jesus is now added to it. Another categorical piece as this has progressed is to know Jesus, to be in relationship with him. In chapter 4, verse 11 and 34, we covered a big section in chapter 4 that was this large section of Jesus teaching through parables. But if, if you remember, there was, a, there was a significant piece in the middle of that. In, in verse 11, uh, verse 10 and 11, and when he was alone... Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So to know Jesus, to be in relationship with him, to be close, to be in his presence, is a significant piece. Here we get this this parallel of private instruction with his disciples 
alongside the public teaching as he's teaching the crowds and speaking in parables, but privately he's explaining to those close, explaining to those who are following what it is he's trying to say, what it is he's doing, why he's here. And so we get a little bit of that uh, insider, outsider kind of a thing. Those who are close, those who are following, those who are in Jesus' presence are the ones that he's revealing everything to. And those who remain outside... They're only going to hear the parables. There was the, the, the scene a little bit later when Jesus' family comes to the house. Jesus is inside. They've come to, to stop him, to, to make him shut up. And he looks around the room in the house and says, who, who, who is my mother and my brother? It's these. Those who are close. Those who are here for me. Those who are in my presence. Those, those who are here to listen, to follow in faith. This is who my family is. to be in Jesus' presence. And then chapter 5, really the end of chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 5 was the exposure to the real Jesus. If you remember that first story when he calms the storm in the boat, his disciples were terrified after the storm was calmed, realizing they were stuck in a boat with somebody that was a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than they had ever known before. And each story after that was the storms, the demons, the, the sick woman, the raising of the little girl, exposure to the real Jesus, to see his presence and his power, to see his deity and his humanity as he's tired in the boat, to participate with him in active ministry. And then the last um, sort of categorical piece in working through this, this model that leads us up to where we are now is to represent Jesus. Verse uh, 7 in chapter 6, and he called the twelve and began to send them out, is an echo of, of chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Those, those echo each other really closely the moment where he creates the 12, names the 12, makes them on the mountain, and then here where he's calling to, in order to send, there, there's tremendous parallels there, and we're gonna, we'll get into that a little bit later as well. The first part of chapter 6 is a bit of a gut check, a realization that if we're representing Jesus right, there's, there's, there's no guarantees. Rejection is probable. And he even tells them that as he sends them out. If any place won't receive you, if any place won't listen, he gives instruction for that. And then verse, verse 7, called and sent. Called by Jesus and sent by Jesus. To see faith put into action. To be missional representatives of Jesus to a watching world from disciples and followers to disciple-makers who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, so that that goes on and on and on. So you start to see this, this rhythm, this model, this pattern that, that Jesus has laid out and that Mark has carefully prepared for, leading us up to this point where Jesus sends his men out. So what about the middle? What about the middle of this sandwich? What about all this stuff about Herod and John 
Why do we need to know all of this in the middle? Let's look at what we can learn from Herod. Knowledge of Jesus. He knows him. Admiration of Jesus. There's some admiration there. He's comparing him to John. He has interest in Jesus. Even maybe an appropriate fear of who this man is and the power that he seems to work with. But none of those things are the same as faith. Faith in Mark's gospel was always represented by following Jesus, to be with Jesus, to experience Him, to follow His example, to lay aside previous priorities, and to obey His call to Himself. It's sort of ironic that, that Herod seems to have a, a, a greater admiration for Jesus than his own family and his own people in Nazareth. He seems to have understood Jesus' identity and Jesus' power more completely than, than his family and his friends. Because he recognized Jesus, this must be John the baptizer being raised from the dead. This, this guy's amazing, powerful, something big's going on. He's on the level with all of the prophets of old. So there's a bit of a sort of a point of contrast with that, those first six verses where we saw Jesus, that painful rejection in his hometown. And here we see Herod, who doesn't have any faith either, but seems to know a little bit more. So it's almost like uh, the demons that we've seen repeatedly in the book of Mark who have a more complete knowledge, a more correct idea of the person and identity of Jesus than the people around them. But Herod does not follow Jesus. It's not the same as faith. He's heard the message. He's heard of him. He knows him. He recognizes a righteousness and a holiness in him, but he does not repent, turn away from, and therefore turn towards. He does not follow. So then, what about John? What about John? What do we learn from John the baptizer in here? At the beginning of the book of Mark, there's only four verses that summarize John's ministry. And here there's like 15, I think, is what I, what I counted. 15 verses and a ton of detail about John's death. But given this amount of detail, given this sandwiched structure, that it's sandwiched right in the middle of when Jesus sends his disciples out and before they return is when Mark chooses to tell us this story. There's a significant point to be made. It sort of flavors that, that whole sandwich, if you will. Discipleship is costly. And mission is costly. To follow Jesus means to obey His call. It means to obey His sending so while there's no truer life to be had in anyone else or anywhere else, it will cost. It will cost us. So now you look back with that lens of cost at Jesus' model of discipleship and you, and you can see it. To be fishers of men meant leaving the boats on the shore. 
To follow Jesus for Levi meant to leave the tax booth and the wealth and the privilege and position that came with that. Those are both action-oriented examples of repentance. Turning away from and therefore turning towards Jesus. To follow Jesus meant going away to the mountain, going away with him to desolate places, following where he's leading. It meant study. It meant private lessons. It meant participating in the public lessons. It meant learning hard lessons. It meant managing crowds and touching the sick people and the beggars and the lame and the lepers. It meant sailing a boat through the storm and facing an army of demons and comforting a sick woman and feeding a little girl who was dead just a few minutes ago. It meant believing the unpopular thing when an entire city rejects him and therefore rejects you. It meant knowing the fate of John the baptizer and going out to preach repentance anyway. Mission and discipleship is costly. What we learn from this long, detailed excursus sandwiched in to the first mission of Jesus' apostles is the cost of discipleship, the cost of mission, the cost of following Jesus. We can know that. And yet, He sends them out. And yet, He sends us out. And yet, He seems to want to work His mission out through us. To go and do a task that we can't do without him. Under-equipped and ill-prepared, no matter how long we plan, it's still, it's Jesus' mission. And we can see that he chooses to work through and to send out the under-equipped, the ill-prepared. Like I said last week, we're called to be faithful in carrying the gospel of Jesus to every corner of life that we can, and it's Jesus who brings the harvest. It's his mission. This is one of only two times in the entire book of Mark that Mark turns the, the camera, so to speak, turns the camera away from Jesus and tells us a story about someone else. Both of them are about John. Four verses in chapter 1 about John's ministry and 15 verses here about his death. What do we see from John's example of life? This is the only other primary character in the book of Mark. His sudden appearance in chapter 1 and then these are his words. After me comes one who is mightier than I. Elsewhere, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's a right posture towards Jesus. John was a forerunner, a forerunner as a preacher, proclaiming repentance and proclaiming that one was coming who was mightier. Jesus proclaimed repentance and belief in himself. John's the forerunner, Jesus is mightier. With regard to crowds, many people went out to be baptized by John. But for Jesus, the crowds followed him and have lasted down through history. We gather here in the name of Jesus, not John. Right? 
as a disciple maker. John clearly had disciples who followed him and who served alongside him. But Jesus' disciples have multiplied for for 2,000 years, making disciples who make disciples. And it's Jesus' disciples, these men, these 12 men, who planted churches that plant churches that plant churches so that 2,000 years later, across the world, there'd be a handful of people gathered in a concert venue in La Grande, Oregon in 2019, proclaiming the name of Jesus and worshiping God and endeavoring to be disciple-makers. John was a forerunner, and Jesus is mightier. John was a forerunner in arrest. His arrest is just sort of a footnote as Jesus steps onto the scene in chapter 1. Jesus' arrest was prominent, wrought with betrayal and with drama in a public city, in the holy city of Jerusalem. John was a forerunner in death, beheaded, out of sight in some jail cell. They're not actually even sure where he was. But Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, on a hill, in Jerusalem, in front of thousands. At the demands of the crowd, by the demands of the prominent leaders of of the Jewish community, and allowed by, with full knowledge, by high-ranking Roman officials. John was laid in a tomb, it says in verse 29, and that's where his body still is. That last act of honor by his disciples Jesus was laid in a tomb, but he's not there anymore. John was a forerunner, proclaiming Jesus, and Jesus is mightier. In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, of those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus says that the greatest man that had yet been born of a woman is John the Baptist, and yet he was arrested because he stood for and proclaimed what is true and right. He was imprisoned as this offensive oddity, and then he was beheaded as a party favor. Mission is costly. So now you know Discipleship is costly. To follow Jesus will cost us something. I want to uh, close out with, with this final thought, and then we'll, we'll consider our response. Jesus uh, models for us what discipleship looks like throughout, throughout the book of Mark. We can start to piece together and build out a model of what it means to make disciples like Jesus did. But it's, it's, bigger, than, it's bigger than a model. It's a watershed moment. Like I said before, this is the first time that the mission of Jesus is carried forward without his physical presence. This is a big deal. And he marks this in a really stunning way that we've got to see. If you have your your, your Bibles, flip all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Or write that down and look it up later. If we look at Jesus' instructions 
of how they should prepare for the journey. Take no bag, uh, uh, no bread, no money. Uh, Only take a staff, uh, your belt, sandals, and only one tunic. Pretty specific instructions, right? Some have have tried to make this comparison between what what Jesus instructs his followers to do here and made this comparison with the sort of wandering cynics or the wandering philosophers of his day that would uh, eschew, reject authority, reject social norms, reject comforts, and wander around in the desert. But their central story, their central point, while there's some similarities... Their central theme, their central aim is human exaltation. There's still some some derivatives of that to be found today. This is not Jesus as as a wandering philosopher. There's something a lot bigger happening here. So let me make one one point, and then we'll make the big point. Um, One of them is just traveling light equals faith. Jesus sends them out ill-prepared and under-equipped so that their whole journey must remain dependent on God for even just basic provision. No tunic for warmth against the cool nights, no money so they couldn't rent a room when they get to a town. They had to stay with someone, and he gives them instructions to stay in that house to show honor to the person who's going to provide a room for you. And if you're not received, he gives instructions there. You're going to be rejected on this journey, so you shake the dust off, which was a symbolic call to repentance, a symbolic call to reconsider that rejection. Change your mind Change your heart. Hear the message. Don't reject it. That was, a, that was the symbolism of shaking off the dust of your sandals. Perhaps one of the biggest reasons for this is, is, is the action of faith. Active faith would corroborate, would emphasize, would undergird their message of repentance and belief in Jesus. Their own life and the way they walk it out becomes part of the message. The second piece, and this I think is the bigger piece, these instructions mirror another significant point in in history. Exodus 12. The same instructions were given as God was just about to rescue his people out of Egypt. Verse 1 God says, this shall be for you the beginning of months. Your whole calendar year starts now. You've been slaves for 400 years in in Egypt. I'm starting something new now. This is the first month for you. From here on, this is January 1. This is a significant thing that's about to happen. Verses 3 through 6 give instructions about the Passover lamb. Verse 7, it takes some of the blood and to put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And then verse 11, in this manner you shall eat that lamb. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste, ready to go, ready to move. You don't have a bag with you. You don't have extra bread with you. You don't have extra money with you. You've got a staff, a belt, and sandals. 
That's what you got. Be ready to move. There's, there's something intentional being said, and this is a huge, huge moment. Exodus was perhaps the, the most significant point in all of Israel's history until the arrival of Jesus. And this mission then, the sending out of the 12, announces something as significant as the Exodus. This is a new people, having been rescued and formed in, in Jesus' name. A new people rescued and formed. Jesus here is creating a new way of relating to God, of living for God through himself. To be called and sent by Jesus mirrors the exodus when God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It's a massively significant point. So then you start to see just some of those parallels perhaps. This is the rescue and the formation of a new kind of people. A new way in Christ of relating to, living with, and living for God. Called to him and given an active place in his kingdom. The way this story is structured, one of the big takeaway points that sort of undergirds all of that modeling and everything else is the cost of mission, the cost of discipleship. In Hebrews 4, where I started earlier, let me read and I'll finish that out to verse 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. As we consider the response, that's the foundation. This is the confession. This is where our confidence comes from, is in knowing Jesus and being in His presence and through Him with confidence we approach the throne of God with confident expectation of mercy and of grace and of help in the time of need because that's who God is as our Father. What marks us is that, Christian, you're called by Christ. You're then sent by Christ. And we're meant to exist in Christ. In Him we have that confidence. In Him we can approach God. And so we endeavor then to follow Jesus' example of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples so that this thing goes on and on and on. And so just in considering response, a couple of practical things to consider don't neglect the gathering together of the body. Don't neglect coming together as a church. One of the most tangible expressions of the presence of Jesus in our world. And everything about our culture and everything about our, our world around us screams that this is just not that important and it's outdated and maybe even offensive. 
the bride of Christ foreshadows something. The gathering together of his people foreshadows something, imperfectly, certainly. But the bride of Christ foreshadows an eternal gathering around Jesus with every tribe and every color and every language and every occupation and every background, feasting, worshiping, laughing, singing together with Jesus without need, without want, without disease, without fear. No more planning, no more striving, just in Jesus' presence and made whole, truly made whole then. Second, don't discount time spent together. Like going to grab a coffee or going to grab a beer or meeting someone for lunch. Don't discount those times. Time together in one another's presence means, according to Scripture, that it's in the presence of Jesus as well, right? Don't discount those times. I've, I've mentioned this before, but there's this, this, this idea, this sort of, I don't want to use the word magic, but the magic of the table, the, what happens when we gather together for a meal, when we come to the table together, echoes something and it tugs at our heart for something because we're, we're drawn to, we're meant for relationship with Jesus. And at the end of days, we gather around a, a, a huge table for a feast for eternity. So you feel that when you get together for Thanksgiving. That's why Thanksgiving's awesome. I mean, turkey's pretty good, but Thanksgiving is awesome because it starts to echo something. It's a shadow of something. And so those kinds of things, stopping to grab a sandwich with somebody, it, it is always an opportunity. Always an opportunity for mission and discipleship. Always. So don't discount those times. Last, uh, don't miss the call to be a, a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker. Don't miss that call. Uh, it's, it's, it's here. If this is your church, the opportunity to be a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker for him on mission, uh, that's what we're about. So don't miss that call. The rhythm and the mission of the church is to gather like this and to scatter on mission day after day, week after week, to make his name famous as far as we can reach. There's kind of a cool line in there uh, where it says that Herod had heard of it because Jesus' name had become known. Jesus had become famous so that it made it all the way to the top. But the transformative power of Jesus is in the, the faith-filled relationship with him and building relationships with his people. We're not meant to do it alone. We weren't built to do it alone. We're better together. If that's easy enough to remember, just remember that. We're better together. That's how we were built for relationship. 